Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this great time to worship you and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go through your word. Teach us what you would want us to learn from this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 37. We've been looking at the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples. The accusation of all the Jews in that area that they were drunk. Peter gets up and quotes Joel to them, and then he goes on to explain that this is the day that God had spoken of when he was going to come upon the people. He talked about how that they had crucified Jesus and put it on the line that they had been wrong in what they had done. And so he gave this great message to the Jewish people, and now we take over at the end of this message in verse 37. Verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many others' words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. So Peter has preached this message, that they had crucified Jesus, that he had died for their sins, and he had resurrected, and they had seen it, that the Holy Spirit had fallen on him. And the message here says, And when they had heard this, they were pricked in their hearts or agitated, or convicted. We can use a number of words in this, in this place. They heard the gospel message, and for some reason, it really got to them. Holy Spirit talking, Holy Spirit ministering, and to build the church. Because we see that Jesus didn't seem to have this kind of you know, great uh, expectation with the crowds. He picked out individuals. And I think, and for us, if we had seen Jesus lead thousands to the Lord at any, you know, to him at any time, we would have said, well, of course he did it. He, he's God. But he kept telling the disciples over and over, you think what I'm doing is good, you are going to do greater things. And this message is going to bring 3,000 people, about 3,000 people, into the church. And these, their hearts are pricked by the message. Was it because Peter is such a great oracle, orator? No, it's because the Holy Spirit was speaking through him and giving him the words to speak. Why can we be great at what we do for God? Because God works through us. And if we think it's us doing it, God will show us that it's not. Peter stood up and spoke. Why? Because at this moment, he's the leader, of, he's kind of the, the default leader of the, of the band. He is the oldest of the disciples, by, as far as we understand, he was married. All the other ones are believed to have been teenagers. You know, somewhere between 15 to, to 20, they were very young men. And the amazing thing is, when God moves, oftentimes it has been through young people. Uh, the Jesus movement started with younger people for the most part. Uh, the great, Second Great Awakening was mostly young people. The move of the disciples was mostly young people. It's been amazing 
to watch God work. Now, there's always older people as well. Saul of, Saul of Tarsus has to be at least 30 years old because he is a rabbi, within, a, a Pharisee within the Sanhedrin, so he had to be at least 30 years old. But, and Peter is old enough to have a wife, which we know from the, from the Gospels, because his mother-in-law is healed by Jesus from, from her sickbed. And his mother-in-law gets up and serves everybody. You know, it's just kind of amazing. She, she's sick one moment. The next moment, she's making dinner for everybody. You know, uh, because that, she was fully healed. And so we see here Peter standing up. And the people say to him, what shall we do? Now, this is kind of an interesting thing because this is how the Jews think. What do I do to be saved? You know, and they're thinking they're going to hear go to the temple and offer your sacrifice and put so much money in the box and you know do all these things the Pharisees tell you to do. All right, this is what they're expecting. That is what they are used to hearing. Uh, go do something. Even in Jesus' days, it was all about what you did, not what God did for you. And so Peter gives them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the for the remission of sins that you shall and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter starts out the first part is repent. Turn away from your sins. And this is what is needed for somebody to come to Christ. The very first step is recognize you're a sinner and repent. You can't repent if you don't recognize you're a sinner. So technically, the first one is recognize you're a sinner. Now, he's talking to Jews. They know that they are sinners. He has told them how they are responsible for putting Jesus on the cross because of their hard-heartedness. He goes through the, the, their history of hard-heartedness. They know that they're sinners. So for them, his first statement is repent. Now, for us talking to Gentiles, we have to convince somebody they're a sinner first. Because people who aren't following God don't recognize their sin. I've got a person I talk to at, at my work, and she does not believe that she's a sinner. Okay? Just said that's a sinner. Huh? Just talking, saying that, that's a sinner. Oh, it's, it, yeah. it's clear, you know, and I've, and I've tried different ways to get her to understand that she is a sinner, but in her mind... What she does is not sin. You know, lying is not a sin as long as it's for the right reason. And she lies a lot. She, she bends the truth. And she gets mad at me because I won't lie to her students about stuff. You know, I go, no, I can't do that. If they ask me, I'm telling them the truth. Now, I won't tell them everything I know about what's going on in the prison. But if they ask me directly a question that I can't answer, I'm going to answer it truthfully. But she doesn't recognize that as sin. She looks at it as I'm just saying as little I need to or, you know, not. You know, I don't know how she justifies it. But she does not recognize that she is a sinner. And if you don't recognize you're a sinner, you have nothing to repent of. And you have no need of a savior if you don't recognize you're a sinner. Paul, uh, Paul Peter has told the Jewish people they're, they're sinners. He's, he's built that up. And so when they are pricked in their heart and they say, what do we do? His first word is repent. Because they understand repentance. 
They understand repentance. Now, when we're talking to Gentiles, we have to go, okay, first we have to get them to where they know that they're a sinner. Then we have to teach them what repentance is. You know, to turn away from your sin and turn away from what you've been doing. And then he says, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. This is one of the verses that people will look at and say, see the, ver the verse right here says you have to be baptized to be saved. Well, it doesn't really say that. He says, and be baptized for the remission of sins is for release from the bondage of sin. The beautiful thing when we get saved is the peace and release that we have from sin. Now, he's also talking to Jewish people. They understand what baptism is. All right? They understand that baptism was not just going and getting wet for the sake of getting wet. They understood what baptism was, and we've talked about this at other times. From the Jewish perspective, when you changed a belief system to a new rabbi, you got baptized in the name of that rabbi. So he's telling them, you go and you get baptized, which is your agreement to live a way this new teacher teaches. All right? And this is very important. You know, we simplify in our day, and, and the Baptists really simplify it, you know, baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. And that is a true statement. Baptism is an expression of what is changed inside, but it is also an agreement that I'm going to change the way I live. All right? If I'm being baptized, I'm saying I am going to live in the after the name of the teacher that I'm believing in. And you'll see this all through the New Testament. After this point, all through the New Testament, the question they keep asking is, whose name were you baptized in? All right? Because that had importance to them. Who have you agreed to abide by? Whose teaching are you living under? Now, for us in the, in the New Testament, we usually hear John. All right? Uh, or Jesus. But it could have been anybody. It could have been any rabbi that was teaching that they were baptized under. Uh, and we want to keep in, so we want to keep this in context. Who is Peter talking to? All right? He's talking to people who know that they need to repent. He doesn't have to convince them they're sinners because they know they're sinners. They're Jewish believers who come every year to Jerusalem at Yom Kippur to offer the sacrifice once a year for the forgiveness of their, the covering of their sins. They know they're sinners. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there for Passover. So these people are righteous people who are following God. They know they're sinners. So he's, his first thing to them is repent. And then he says, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. In other words, you have a new teacher. You're agreeing to follow the teachings of Jesus. And this is and then it goes, for the release of sins. And this is what happens. When we get saved, God releases us from the burden of our sins. He lifts them off. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, Christian goes up the hill of Calvary, stands before the cross, and the burden that he's been covered with for the first four chapters, because it takes him four chapters to get there, comes 
breaks loose from his back and rolls down the hill into the, into the tomb at the bottom of the, of the cross, and he's immediately lightened up with his load. And you probably have experienced that in your lifetime when you first got saved, that load of sin and guilt being lifted off. Now, an unfortunate thing for many of us as Christians is we go right back in and go find our sins and our burdens and put them back on our back. Uh, there's a skit that's very, very famous in, for youth where this guy comes out and he's dragging a whole bunch of bags and, and uh, backpacks and everything and to represent his sin. He comes to the cross. He puts everything at the cross. And there's one of two ways the story, you know, the, the, he'll either walk away like he's supposed to and leave it there or, but usually is he'll turn around and start walking away and then he'll reach back and grab one bag. Then he'll grab another bag. And usually leaves with almost all the bags, if not all the bags. You know, and this is what we as Christians oftentimes do. Here, God, you can have all my problems and all my, everything that's weighting me down. And then we reach back and say, well, I think I can handle this one. I think I can handle And we end up taking back almost everything that we give him in the first place. Our job is to go to the cross, put our cares upon God, and leave them there. And here is Peter saying, if you repent and you agree to live by the way God live, uh, Jesus tells you, you will be released. The beautiful thing, this message is something very different to them. They're used to the idea of getting forgiven for their sins for one year at a time. Peter's telling them that you'll be released from your sins completely. This is a message that they long for but never hoped for. Even though all through the scriptures, the prophets told them it was coming, it was going, you know, there's going to come that day where the forgiveness is coming. Peter's saying it's here. It's no longer coming. It's here. This is a powerful message. Now, Peter shortcuts a lot of what we have to do as Gentiles. We have to make sure they're lost first, then we get them into repentance, then we get them into the idea that they have to follow Jesus, and then they can really start to understand being released from their sin. Peter gets to say it in one sentence. Why? Because he's talking to Jews. And there's a lot of people go to look at this message of Peter and say, well, Peter gave a message and 3,000 people got saved. And they'll look and say, wow, Paul the orator never saved 3,000 people. Paul the orator didn't minister to Jews that knew that they were sinners and, and, need, and were looking for God. He preached to Greeks who had to get lost first then learn what repentance is, then learn to obey God and follow God. Paul did a great job for what he had because the Jews usually rejected him. And Peter gets a great, great blessing. And there's a lot of people, in, especially in seminaries, that say, you've got to follow Peter's way of teaching. Well, Peter's way works if you're teaching Jews. In America, we had people who used to think like Jews. They had been trained that, they, that there was a God and that they were sinners and they needed to turn to God. It was, used to be real easy to get thousands of people to come forward. In today's world, our people think like Greeks. You have to get them lost before you can get them saved. And that's a hard job. It really is a hard job when somebody doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in sin, and in our day and age doesn't believe that there's anything right and wrong and that we're judging them if we say there's right and wrong and we have to get them lost, it's a tough job. It's a very tough job without the Holy Spirit pricking their heart. And here we see him saying, you've got all of this, 
And then the next benefit is, once you've done all this, you receive the Holy Spirit. Same process for us. When somebody's lost, they repent, they, they, they obey Jesus, they, they're remission of sin, and they get the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit living in us, changing us from the inside out. This is what is very different about Christianity because God indwells us. A loving God indwells us. And if you talk to most people following any other religion, they do not understand a loving God. They are afraid of their God because they're afraid of their God looking to knock them over the head every time that they do something wrong, and they are absolutely fearful of him. The sad thing is, how many of us Christians have this attitude that God is just looking for us to do something wrong so he can knock us over the head? You know, God is not like that. He loves us and says, just come into my arms, I'm waiting for you. He is the, the father of the prodigal looking for us to return so that he can put his arms around us and say, welcome back. And just as Jesus told Peter, when Peter said, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Peter thought he was being real spiritual. He goes, seven times? Because seven is the number of perfection. And seven times is a lot of times to forgive him, forgive a person. You know, Peter thought he was being very magnanimous. You know, God, if I forgive him seven times, I'm, I'm doing a lot more than the Pharisees would do. And it, you know, this is against all my nature. And Jesus' answer was 70 times 7. And he didn't mean 490. <laughs> okay? He meant just keep forgiving them. Why? Because that is what the Father does for us. No matter how many times we fail, he is right there saying, welcome back. That is hard for us to understand because it is so not like anything we would do. We can picture a God who would get angry with us for sinning. We can picture a God that would get tired of us sinning. But it is hard for us to picture a God who loves us so much that says, I paid for that, it's covered. Welcome back. I know you've done it five million times, but welcome back. You, you're repentant, you're right back. And we can't even begin to comprehend a God that loves us that much. But you know, if we could get to where we understand that God loves us that much, it would give us freedom. It would give us the opportunity to try things. You know, and this is important. If you are afraid that something's going to go wrong, if you're afraid that you're going to be in trouble for doing anything, you don't do it. Why do most older people fear computers? Because they're afraid that if they touch something, it's going to break. If you can be convinced that somebody can fix that computer for you, when you break it, or you'll try anything and you'll find out it doesn't break as easy as you think it does. But you have to be convinced that somebody can fix anything that happens. That's the God we follow. I step out and do anything, and even if it's wrong, he can fix the problem and says, welcome back, you're, you're repentant, come on back, we'll, we'll try again. And again, and again, and again, and again. But he's right there saying, I love you enough. He does not want us hunkered down in, in, in holes saying, I'm so afraid I can't do anything. 
He wants us out sharing the gospel. So we mess it up. We at least tried. The Holy Spirit can even use those attempts that mess, are messed up. We quote one scripture, and that's all we get out of our mouth. We tell them that God loves you, and that's all we can get out of our mouth. And we mess up everything after that. The Holy Spirit can use that one sentence, God loves you, to win them. We need to be bold to step out for him. Because God loves us. He cares for us. His Holy Spirit indwells us. And he does not leave us just because we mess up. You know, and sometimes as a Christian, you almost wish he would because the conviction he puts us under when we mess up can be bad and hard. And he's right there. We walk away from him and he stays right there. He says, you need to come back. You need to come back. You need to come back. And eventually, we'll come back. Because he's right there whispering into our ears over and over again. Telling us that, and you know, how many times do we try to go back to some sin that we thought we enjoyed in the past before we were saved, and it's just not the same because the Holy Spirit won't let us enjoy it, won't let it even try. And the whole reason we left it is because it didn't fulfill us anyway. And now the Holy Spirit's reminding us that it doesn't fulfill us. And he says, I've got more for you, just turn around, turn away from your sin. And they would, he told them, that the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the beauty of Christianity is God lives in us. You, know, you talk to a Muslim, they don't have the concept of a God of love. You talk to Jehovah's Witness, they don't have a concept of a God of love because you have to do things to get into heaven. You talk to a Mormon, they have the same problem. You know, yes, they, they believe that Jesus will, will lead them, but they, if you really want anything from God, you have to do things. And we need to be careful that we don't get to that place. We just turn to God and say, God, I am yours. Does that mean we won't do anything for God? No, we'll do lots of things for God because he's going to move us in the direction as he changes our life. The prodigal son being returned to the father would have served the father. And he would have served the father with a greater desire because he knew how bad he was. The older brother was self-righteous. He had a problem with the brother returning. Now, Father, how can you accept him back? He went out and lived a terrible life. I've always been with you. I've always done everything you've asked. I've never left you. And he goes, you've never given me a party. He was envious of his brother. And you know, this can be something that can be very important for us to understand. As we walk with God, we, need, we can't become the older brother. God, I have done so much for you, especially people who get saved early. You know, and they get saved and they didn't draw, go off in the, into the world and do all these things. Sometimes they can get very envious of, you know, those who have, you know, been accepted by God after all the bad stuff they've done and get self-righteous and say, God, I never did anything. Why, why am I not being blessed the same way? Because you're being blessed in a different way. You know, and that was, I went through that whole process, you know, being saved young and, and listening to people with their, their testimonies of how they'd gone into drugs and alcohol and, and hit rock bottom and God had saved them. And I was like, what do I have to say? I, I, I grew up following God. You know, and I, and I, and I, you know, and you all know I've said this, you know, and I've learned over, over time. And one of them actually took me aside one time when I said that and going, you don't understand. We'd give up our, we'd give up the testimony you think is so great to have not had so many problems in our lives and caused so many problems that were caused. <laughs> 
And I needed to hear that because it was tough. You know, God, I got saved when I was 10 years old. I didn't do any of this stuff. Now, I've had other sins to bother me. <laughs> Don't you, know, you know, I had plenty of sins to have to deal with, but not the ones you make big testimonies out of. You know, and here, Peter is telling them, repent, be baptized, be filled. And he, it's a simple message he gets to give because they already know. In verse 39, it says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He's talking to Jews and said, God promised you. All right? The blessings of the Jew are to them first. This is why Paul, when he went into every city, went to the synagogue first, preached to the Jews. They rejected him. He preached to the Gentiles. But he always went to the Jews first because the Jews were the chosen people and still are to this day, even though they're not living according to their birthright and they're not following God, they are still God's chosen people. Now, not all, not all of them are going to heaven. The only way they go to heaven is through Jesus Christ. But God says, I chose you first. Follow me. And this is what Peter tells him. You were chosen first. You were chosen first. You were called. And this is what God said to do. And he says, many as the Lord your God shall call. Now this is, this is one of those verses that really bug people. That God is the one that does the calling. And there is a general call that God makes to the entire world to be saved. It is God's desire that none go to hell. Now, he knows that many are going to reject him. Some he pursues pretty heavily. Why does he pursue some harder than others? I don't know. Is it just that they recognize that they're being pursued and, and not rejected is probably true. God pursued me and I responded at a young age. Paul got pursued. He did a lot of things going into Judaism, and all of a sudden he realized that he wasn't following God in the totality when God won him. Peter, James, John, and all the other disciples answered the call of Jesus. He said, come, follow me. And they immediately walked away from what they were doing. Poor Zebedee, he lost all of his sons in one day. You know, and probably Peter and John were, you know, Peter and a number and Andrew were part of that group. So he lost most of his fishing, fishing group in one day. Isn't it a good thing that God gave him a great big catch of fish so that he could be able to buy and hire other workers? You know, he walks up to Matthew or Levi and says, come follow me. And Matthew immediately leaves his tax collecting booth and follows Jesus. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing thing that these guys left some things lucrative businesses to follow Jesus. Yeah, a, lot of faith. a lot of faith. Especially for somebody like Matthew. Yeah. Uh, you know, you want me? I'm not, I'm not liked by any Jew because I'm a tax collector. I've, I've been a sympathizer with Rome. Then you add in the fact that you had... Uh, Judas the Zealot. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Zealot. He is at the opposite end of Matthew. 
Matthew is a sellout as far as Jews. Judas, the, the zealot, was at the opposite end. He is actively trying to kick Rome out. He's ready to wage war. He would be a terrorist by our, by our definition, by Rome's definition, because he's going to actively try to fight. And Jesus puts Matthew and Judas the zealot in the same group. I can imagine the arguments that those two must have had at various times. You know, uh, or loud discussions. <laughs> you know, but all of this comes down to the Holy Spirit coming into us, and they were called. And then in verse 40, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. That's kind of interesting that he uses untoward or evil generation. Because we don't really think of Jesus' day as being all that evil. But if you know history, the Roman Empire at this point was falling apart. It's got another 300 years, 400 years before it really gets to its peak of its, of its uh, bad. But even at this point, it's starting to fall apart. Sin is rampant. Under the, Jew, uh, under the Roman Empire. Fornication, adultery, promiscuity, all of these things are rampant. Being, being uh, cruel to other people. You know, when, when the Jews lived by their an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, nobody else did. They were looked at being, as being very strange. We look at them as, you know, you're really, you know, you guys were really cruel, an eye for an eye. But, you know, they were living in a place, even up through Jesus' time, when you harm somebody, you better be ready to defend yourself because they're going to take everything they, they can from you. And Jesus comes along and tells the Christians, uh, oh, by the way, an eye for an eye is, is too, too much vengeance. You're going to love your enemy. You're going to pray for those who despitefully use you. God will be your, your, your uh, vindicator and your vengeance. You know, and here he is. He's, he's testifying. And he's building up and he's sharing them what they need to do to get saved. What a beautiful message he has for them. And then verse 41. Then they that gladly received his words were baptized. And that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. So they continued daily in one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And I love this picture, added daily. But we look at this and he says, they that gladly received his words were baptized. Again, this is an understanding of the Jewish people. I have changed my teacher. I need to be baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, which we'll talk about in a couple of chapters, the first thing he said to Philip after he changed and asked, accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, he goes, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? 
There's nothing in there that really said that, P, uh, that Philip was the one who did it. He was a Jewish man coming to the Passover, and he was leaving now after Pentecost, and he got cha- saved, and he knew that he was changing teachers. He says, I need to be baptized. You know, it was just something they did. They did not have to be taught this. So these guys come in, they, they change their, their teacher, and they go and they get baptized. And his first message got 3,000 people. The church went from 150, 500, somewhere in that boat, to, to, to 3,000 more in one message. These poor disciples were baptizing all night long. <laughs> Yeah, it took a long time to baptize this many people. Even if it was a real quick baptism, even if it took five or, you know, five five minutes each, you know, we're talking about one a fifteen hundred minutes worth of time <laughs> to baptize these people. Now, granted, there's there's a bunch of them, so they can they can baptize these people quickly, but it's going to take time, and these people are making a big deal. Now, you can imagine that the Sanhedrin the scribes, the Pharisees, they were not excited about this. Jesus was supposed to have been taken care of. All right? Fifty days earlier, he'd been crucified. And here's his disciples baptizing people in his name. All right? This is not going over well with the leaders. But the people are saying, we believe this message. We believe the Messiah has come. And they get baptized, and the church is very large instantly in Jerusalem. And they continued in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking in bread and in prayers. This is the picture of the first church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And we've said before, doctrine is not a scary word. A lot of people are afraid of the word doctrine. Doctrine is literally just a way of thinking. The apostles were teaching these people what they had been taught by Jesus. Now, they had it pretty easy. Jesus had spent 24 hours a day with them for three years. He discipled them every day and showed them, this is what you do in this situation. This is how you handle this. This is what you do. And he did it by example. This is our job when we disciple people. Show people how to react, not just by teaching, but by example. That when something bad happens to us and we just say, God, I'm putting it in your hands, and they go, oh, that's how you, that's how you handle the trials. That's how you handle the tribulation. This is the important step discipleship, teaching people to think differently. And most of that is done by example. People need to see that we are different in the way we handle things because the Holy Spirit is in us and we do things differently from the world. You know, Jesus said you love your enemies and the world says you attack your enemies. You You get as much from your enemy as possible. And Jesus says love them. And so the disciples are leading in all this. Then in fellowship, and the word here is koinonia. All right? We transfer that, translate that as fellowship or church. And what it really is is a gathering of joint association, intimately gathered of like mind. 
In other words, we stick with people that, we, that, that uh, have the same thought processes. We as Christians cannot have fellowship koinonia with the world. Why? Because we think differently. All right? We can't be in intimate fellowship with the world and still follow God. This is important. How do we have this kind of koinonia fellowship? We spend time with other Christians. This is why we're told, forsake not the assembling of yourself and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need each other to help us continue to think correctly. If you hang out with the world, you will become like the world. Even though God's living in you, you will become like the world. You will be backslidden. You won't be making the right decisions. The other part is the breaking of bread. They ate meals together. You know, and it's kind of funny because every denomination I have been in always has the same type of comment, and we hear it all the time when we're up in the end of the month dinner. You know, to be a good Baptist, you have to enjoy, you know, eating eating together and having your meals together. Well, I'll tell you what, I've been in many churches and I hear it all the time. To be a good assembly of God, you've got to meet together. To be a good whatever, you know, put your put the name of the denomination in there. Why? Because breaking of bread is intimate. When we eat together, we share with each other, we talk with each other, or at least we're supposed to be talking with each other. You know, and so we have this koinonia, this fellowship together of like minds, and then we break bread together, and then in prayers. And one of the greatest things we can do as a Christian is pray with, with one another and for one another. There's an intimacy in prayer when you open up your heart to pray for people and yourself and each other. And those are the four things that really were the main focus of the first century church. Abiding by the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And what was the result? And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. The apostles did miracles. And some of these miracles were pretty big miracles. They were healing people. They were, uh, you know, we have Ananias and Sapphira who died for lying to, the holy, lying to the church. You know, God did things to show his holiness and his righteousness and he touched the church. Why does God not do these many, these many miracles nowadays? It's because we won't let him, bluntly. We don't believe in a God who's powerful enough to do the miracle. Moses stood on the, the side of the Red Sea. Three and a half million people are ready to stone him because they have the Egyptian army behind them and a sea in front of them. And Moses is saying, God has a way to get you out of here. Just watch. And he holds the staff over the water and the water splits. And the people over and over did not have faith. Their God was small. Is your God a small God or a big God? I hope that you're thinking of God as big. And I'm going to tell you, as I've always said, I don't care how big you think God is, you're still too small. But I hope you have a big God compared to most people. God is waiting to answer our desires and our, and our needs. And he's waiting for us to step out. 
And we need to be able to step out and say, God, I just want to see you work. You know, I have, I have the same problem. Sometimes I'm going, God, I really want this, but, you know, are, is it me that wants it and spend on myself, or is it something that you can do? And, you know, there's been times I've asked for things, and I don't think God's going to give them to me because I think they're for me. And there's other times when I pray to God and go, God, this is for the church, and that we want to see this. I want to see a revival start here in chloride. And I'm seeing signs that God is working revival in chloride. I'm looking forward to the day when it just explodes in this town. Will it go beyond this town? I don't know, don't care, but I want to see this town get revival. I'd love for it to be going across the, across the state and across the country. But I want to see God work here and change. And it starts in our hearts as the church of following after him. And then verse 44, this one is used very, 44 and 45 and 46, I'm going to read them all together because they're used by the world in a, in, against the, the church and for socialism. And all, the belie- all they that believed were, to, were together and they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need and they continued daily in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There are many people that use these verses in today's world and see, see, God, God believes in socialism. Well, we got to understand this verse a little bit. When these Jewish people became Christians, they were rejected by the synagogues. And when you were rejected by the synagogue, the rest of the Jews did not come to your business. You lost, your, you lost your livelihood. You lost everything by becoming a Christian. This is a big deal to these believers. They got saved, and their whole world was turned upside down. This was not a minor decision for them. This is very much like the Muslim world. In many Muslim worlds, if somebody becomes a Christian, they lose everything. They're likely to lose their life because they're trying to kill them, but even before that, Nobody will go to their business. Nobody will sell them anything. Nobody will even talk to them. Even today's world, in the Orthodox Jewish world, if an Orthodox Jew becomes a Christian and their their parents are very Orthodox, their parents will have a funeral service for that, that unrepentant Jewish person who left Judaism. And they won't talk to them. They won't acknowledge them. These believers are in Jerusalem. They have businesses. Now, 3,000 of them could maybe keep themselves together, but how do you buy and sell outside of your group when nobody will deal with you? You can't. So they did what they had to do. They just said, okay, we're just all going to help each other. A lot of these ones, so a lot of these 3,000 moved left. Because these, at the very beginning of this chapter, remember we talked about how these were people from all around the world because this is Pentecost. It's one of the three days that they have to be in, in Jerusalem to, to uh, share. So you're right, a lot of the 3,000 people went otherwise. Not so much that they left, they didn't have any from there either. 
but they had nothing there. So if they stayed, they didn't have anything. And many of them went back home anyway, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. He goes back to Ethiopia. It's kind of amazing. I read the story of Ethiopia being reached by a missionary, and they were surprised to find a church. And, I, and then when I read that, I'm going, why would you be surprised to find a church in Ethiopia when the Ethiopian eunuch went back to Ethiopia? You know, uh, it made no sense to me, but yet, because people sometimes don't know the word of God, they don't really think about it. But here, you're right, some of the people didn't have anything, so if they stayed, they had nothing to begin with. If they went back home, you, you had 3,000 people get saved, but not all of them stayed. And those who did stay and did have things lost it because they had turned their back on Judaism as far as they were concerned. You know, so we got a lot of problems going on for these poor people. So they do or did what we as Christians will have to do in the near future if we don't have revival. If we don't have revival in the near future, we may need to gather together and say, who has stuff that we can live on? Who can, who can uh, grow crops? Who can fix the cars? Who can... You know, who has a house that's paid for that they're not losing and join together. This may come a time when we're just doing what they do because of the problems that come at us. In, again, in Muslim countries where somebody gets saved, a lot of times they do this. They band together because that's all they have. They have a small Christian group that supports each other in whatever way they can. Here we have a group of as you said, poor, poor people that are from out of town and people who have lost their businesses. And they say, fine, we're just going to share. I've got, I've got food. I've got, a, I've got a garden over here. I can, I can grow some food. I've got a couple, I've got five or six, you know, uh, animals and they're having babies and we can have, you know, we can have their, you know, some of the excess uh, food there and provide it for each other. And they join together in one. And right now in America, we don't need that close-knit. We probably should, but we don't need it because we can have a job, even though we're a Christian. And people are going to come to us. There will be a time when people look at us and say, well, you Christians are so weird, I don't want to have anything to do with you. We're not coming to your store, and we're going to make sure nobody else does. And we're starting to see that happen. You know, we've had... Christian businesses targeted because they're Christian businesses who won't do things that are against Christianity. Things like the cake decorators that wouldn't be participate in a homosexual marriage. Uh, you know, the, a, card a, a custom card maker who wouldn't participate in making cards for a homosexual marriage. And they've been targeted. And they've been on purpose targeted because there'll be another business just a couple of streets down that would have done it for them with no problem, but they will target the Christian. I read, read an article how this Catholic church is being sued because they would not do an abortion, uh, a sex change operation. When all they had to do was go two more blocks to Johns Hopkins University Hospital, who would gladly do their operation, but they chose the Catholic hospital on purpose. This stuff is happening a lot in our day. We need to be prepared because things are going to happen to us. We're going to lose businesses. We're going to need each other. And if God does not have a revival, we will need each other greatly very soon. And we need to be prepared for such a time. 
And this is why they were doing all this. This was not a practice in socialism. It isn't God saying, well, see, per, you know, personal property is not, not necessary. Why would he say you shall not steal if there's, if there's no, prop, no personal property? All right? Uh, God believes in personal property, but he also understands that as believers in a, in a koinonia, that we're going to help take care of each other. And he understands that, and that's what's happening with this early church. And they continued daily in one accord, one mind. They all were together, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meals with gladness and with singleness of heart. You know, this is the thing about us as Christians. We should be joyful. And this word for gladness is exuberant joy. You know, I have always in my lifetime had problems with sourpuss Christians. <laughs> I have even been to a few churches where it looks like if they, if they were to crack a smile, they would immediately die. You know, because they never smiled. You know, they would almost believe that if they smiled, they thought they would go to hell. So they had sour dispositions. And it's like, God tells us to be joyful. He tells us to have this exuberant joy. We as Christians should stand out in the world because we know that God is in control, which gives us a peace that they don't understand and makes us understand that even when we're going through hard times, God has a plan. We may not like the hard times, and I don't like the hard times I go through, but because I know that God has a plan, I can be content even in the hard times. And you know, the more you're content, the less you recognize that you're going through a hard time. It's an amazing thing. I'm so, if you're so focused on God and knowing that he has a plan for you, it doesn't seem like it's that bad. Because you're always looking, God, there's something out there. I'm looking beyond my problems to what is going to be the blessing. And knowing that I'm in God, he takes the pounding of the storm and we get out on the other side and go, well, that wasn't too bad. Then we look at our ship and look, and look at all the damage to the ship and go, wow, that was a pretty bad storm. And usually it's somebody else pointing out how bad the storm was. <laughs> yeah. But this is what happens. We are to be exuberantly joyful and happy and content not because of the problems but because of what God will do through the problem and this is the great news and I've said this my you all know my favorite verse is Romans 8 28 and it's the, it it's the knot at the end of the rope when everything seems to be going bad I grab hold and say God I'm holding on to this knot I'm sitting on this I made a big enough knot I'm sitting on this knot it's at the very end of the rope <laughs> but God you have made a promise and I'm going to hold on to that promise. That needs to be our attitude. God, you've made a promise that all things work together for good. I love you, and you've called me, so it's going to work together for good. And you watch what he does, and over the years you watch him work everything for good. And even if you don't see what's good about it, the guarantee and the promise is, there is something good, and we might not know it until we get to heaven when he shows us this. This happened because of what you went through. This person got saved because of what you went through. 
This person was motivated to serve me greater because of what you went through. We don't know what all those, all those blessings are going to be. But when we get to heaven, we're going to get blessed with some rewards that we did not know that we had. Because we were faithful in the trial and just held on and said, God, you promised it's good. I don't know what it is that's going to be good. But you are going, you have a promise. These people, even though life was hard, grabbed hold of, God, you, you made a promise. And then it says, and I love this, in singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily, as should be saved. Now, one of the problems here is I'm sure they did not have favor with all people. There are going to be people out there that aren't going to like their life change. We as Christians oftentimes have people that have favor for us. Sometimes our favor comes from the strangest places, from the lost world sometimes. Other times, there are people that are attacking us. They don't like us. We all know what those kind of people are, especially when we love them and we want to see them saved. And we hear things like, you're just judging me. You, know, you think you're better than me. And they attack us. But, you know, we need to live live so that most people have favor with us. That they know that when we say we're going to do something, we do it. When, when we say something, it is true. When we talk to them, they know that they are loved. And this is very important. One of the things we need to be able to communicate to people is that God loves them. That has great power because most people don't think that God loves them. And when you tell them God loves you, you'll hear things like, well, you wouldn't say that if you knew what I'd done. doesn't matter. God loves you so much he died for you on the cross so that you could be forgiven. You know, they don't understand. They need to keep hearing God loves you you. We as believers need to keep in a forefront of our mind that God loves us. Sometimes that's another knot at the end of the rope. God loves me no matter what I've done. God loves me. You know, and there's different knots at the end of the rope. Mine has always been Romans 8, 28. You know, because I've never really doubted that God loved me. But I do know people have gotten so bad that they really have trouble with God loving them. You know, we need to, whatever, whatever not we need, and this is why everybody has their own verses that they love. Because it is individualized to each person and what they've gone through and who they are. But we need to let people know God loves them. And I love this last part. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. God is the one that adds. God is the one that brings them to him. Our job is simply to speak to speak his word, to speak the gospel. And God does the work. And this is why we have a hard time with this. You know, you know this is where we have a hard time with, you know, do I, did I choose God or did he choose me? Yes. Both. You know, he chose me. He brought me into a place where I would say yes. So we both have agreed that he chose me. Now, I sometimes think that I chose him, but if it wasn't him bringing me to where he did, I would not have chosen him. Now, does God give every single person that opportunity to choose him? Yes. His desire is that none will go to hell. 
He gives people the opportunity. Many don't take it. Many don't want to take it. And even in those, God gives the opportunity over and over and over again. For many of us, we can think of all the different times that we had the opportunity to come to him before we did and realize that he kept offering it to us many times. He saved us from destruction several times so that we could come to him. He appears to people. Many of the Muslims who are seeking after God, he will, he will see a vision of Jesus and saying, I know that you want me go talk to the people of the book, which is Christians, people that follow the Bible. You know, and he'll talk to them and tell them, you're wanting God? Go the right direction. He will do what it takes. When the missionaries came into South America and Central America and even Africa, many times the people would tell them, we've been waiting for somebody to tell us the rest of the story. They'd had a vision, they'd had a dream of part of the story that they needed God. And they were getting saved by what little they knew. And then they would hear the rest of the story, that Jesus died for your sins. What did they know before that? We can't please God. We need him. And ultimately, that's what salvation is. When I realize that I cannot earn my own salvation, I need God to do it, that is where salvation comes. Now, we know it's because of Jesus' sacrifice and all of that. But when I recognize, God, I cannot earn salvation. I need you, and I accept Jesus Christ. We're saved. For them, they may not know Jesus' name, but they, they know the part, I can't do it on my own. All of religion is based on, I've got to go earn my salvation. Every, so every religion, if you do a study on religions, and I don't recommend that you do, but if you did, you're going to find out that every religion is based on one of two things. There is no eternity, so therefore, don't even worry about it. Or, you have to earn your place with God. Even if it's one of the re, uh, reincarnation ones, where you just get to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over until you get it right which is sad because you never get it right, so that was a really sad way of living. Or that you just hope that you've done enough good things in your one lifetime, which you're never going to have enough good because God's standard is perfection. This is why Jesus had to die for our sins, so that we could be forgiven, because we could not pay the debt, we could not earn our position in heaven. So Jesus came and paid a debt that he didn't owe, that we couldn't pay and paid it for us. This is the beauty of salvation. God came and paid the debt so that when we stand before him in, with acceptance of his sacrifice, it's like, well, thank you. you, you took the gift. Which is why nobody is going to hell for their sins. They're going to hell for committing the unpardonable sin and that's rejecting Jesus Christ. And they will be sent to hell. Are there levels of hell because of the consequences of their sin? Possibly, I'm not going to go there. But they all get sent for one reason. They rejected Jesus. We enter heaven because we accepted him. And he promises us that we have rewards through what he's done for us. So is there possibly consequences in heaven for, for your evil? 
I'm not going to rule it out. If we have rewards, hell probably has consequences. But we don't, I don't want to go too far there because we know that they go to hell for one reason. They rejected Jesus. God has one question for you, for us as, as human beings. What did you do with my son? Very simple thing. We spend our lifetime and God's going to ask us one question. Now, he won't even ask us as Christians because we'll be his and we'll go straight to, to Jesus on the beam seat, but to the lost at the, beam, at the white throne, what did you do with my son? And every one of them have rejected him. And all they're going to do is be, and God will show them every time they rejected salvation. When they get sent to hell, it is not that God sent them there, they chose it. And when they enter into hell, they will recognize they're there because they chose it. And this is why when you talk to people and they go, why would God send anybody to hell? He doesn't. He gives them what they chose. And they had plenty of opportunities to accept him. Now they may not recognize it. Because most of us, and I've heard this so many times when somebody gives their testimony, and I heard the gospel message for the first time that day. And usually after a few years they realize, wow, that wasn't the first time I heard it. It has been said that we need to hear the gospel six times before we respond, on average. And that probably is valid. I know I got saved at 10, but I'd heard the gospel message since, the, since I was six years old. Because I'd gone to churches. I'd gone to seeking God and trying to find him. So I'm sure I heard the gospel message more than once. But finally, at age 10, realized, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. And each one of us probably can think about that same thing, that we heard the message and rejected it. And we know, and if you, if you lead people to the Lord, it's kind of funny because some of the times you talk to somebody and they finally accept Jesus and they'll say, this is the first time I heard it. And you're thinking, well, I told you at least three times over the last, last few years, but you don't say it because in reality, it is the first time they heard it. You know, their ears heard it, their brain heard it, but their heart did not hear it until the time they respond. So in all reality, it is the first time they heard, literally heard to obey. Now their brain heard it several times before that, but it didn't get any further than the brain. And this is why a lot of people will say, well, you know, I believe there's, I believe there's a God. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. Satan and his de demons believe there's a God. I believe Jesus is the son of God. So do the demons. You know, it's not until it becomes real and I accept him into my life that it becomes real. And this is important. When we give the gospel message out, we're looking for it to become real. When Jesus gave the parable of the seed, 75% of the seed did not produce fruit, did not produce Christians. Some of it sprang up and was choked out by the cares of the world. Some of them some of it sprang up and was choked out, uh, was dried up because it had no root. Some of it was taken before it even had a chance to, to affect their life. But only the seed that landed in the right prepared soil grew up and produced fruit. And this is why it's hard sometimes, you know, because people go, well, they lost their salvation. No, they never had it. Now, it's kind of an amazing thing. When you talk to people who believe you can lose your salvation, we as Baptists are not that far off from them. 
Because usually they'll say it's hard to lose your, your, sal your, your salvation. You know, it's very difficult. You know, they'll say you lost it. I will, as Baptists, we will say you never had it in the first place. And we, we're not really that far off. Because I've said over and over, if you can sin consistently without any conviction in your life that you're sinning, you need to really decide and you know, look at God and say, God, do I know you? I may know a lot about you. I may know a lot of your word. I might have even memorized a lot of your word. But do I know you? And this is important. Because I know that I cannot sin without being under conviction. And it doesn't matter how simple the sin might seem. I'll be convicted. You can't hide from God. If you're his, you're going to be convicted. But this is how we know we're his. And again, if we can sin without being under conviction, then we have to really look and say, God, am I really your child? Have I hardened my heart so bad that I don't feel this conviction anymore? And this is where we get the verses that say that no murderers, no liars, no fornicators, no homosexuals, you know, and a long list of things will enter into heaven. In the, the Greek, those are consistently repeating the same sin over and over and over again. And even further than that, have no conviction that they're sinning. If we're convicted of our sin, we should change. Or we're going to be very miserable. There's no happiness when we're being convicted. There is no joy when we're being convicted. Which is probably why a lot of American Christians have no joy. Because if they are his, they're under deep conviction because of their lifestyle. Because they can't do what they used to do. Well, they can't do what they want, used to do, and they won't do what God wants them to do. So they're under conviction the whole time and have no joy. And I don't know if they're saved or not. That's between them and God. Because all they have to do is accept Jesus Christ, repent and recognize their sin and repent, and they're a Christian. But if you don't live at it, there's really no way you can prove it. When, when we live for God and we follow him and we are, our life is being changed, we can point to our changed life and say, this is the works that God has done in my life. I am a new, new creation that is following him and by faith I am his. If you do not have a changed life, there is no way you can prove to anybody that you're saved, including yourself. Now that's not to make us get all worried and, and desperate. If you're under conviction when you sin, you're his child. Because he corrects his children. If you can do it without, without conviction, then you've got a big problem. You're probably not his child. Or you've hardened your heart so bad that he's going to take you home pretty soon. So here we have this great message, the building of the church with joy and peace, helping one another, being of one mind, caring for one another. And this is important for the church, that we care for one another. Whatever that care is going to be expressed. Helping somebody. You know, looking at the, the single mom and saying, let me take care of your kids for a night so you can just have a good, enjoyable night. You know, people who are good with mechanics may go and say, you widow, you, 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 you person who can't afford it, let me help you fix your car. There's all kinds of ways that we can reach out and touch one another with our skills that we have. Now, some of us don't have as many skills in those areas as others, 
But there's other skills out there. Praying for one another. Lifting one another up. Teaching. All of those are skills that are very needed in the church. We also need the practical skills that touch people and bring them to Christ. And we're going to end here because I went way over our time. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the start of the church, that you brought them into a perfect unity of caring for one another. Help us to care for one another. Help us to seek after ways that we can minister to other people and help them out. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.